Hello and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the unchanging love of Jesus to change people's lives. I'm Eric Sintel, and I'm going to continue reviewing this study, Anno Domini, the first 500 years of the church, um, and talking about some of the church history, uh, early church history, and really using this study, you know, to provide an accessible entry into discussing that history as well as kind of a launching pad or jumping off point for adding some other things that I've learned over the years of, you know, trying to, to learn about my, my faith tradition. So in this uh, episode, we're going to be talking about uh, Paul's first missionary journey as well as the Council of Jerusalem. So in the last episode about the history of the church, um, we talked about um, 37, 38 AD, talked about Saul's conversion, and we talked about Peter's experience with Cornelius. So after Peter goes to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and uh, converts him, and the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and all the people in his family and his household, um, Peter returns to Jerusalem to update the church. And he explained what happened, and most of the disciples and believers were a little skeptical. You know, what? What You went and ate with an uncircumcised Gentile and entered his home, and wait, the Holy Spirit came upon him? What? So this was a big deal uh, for the church because it showed that God is extending his grace and his mercy and love to all people, not just reserving it for the Jewish people. And so we see a radical inclusion in the New Testament and the early history of the church. So now in this part of the story, um, in Acts chapter 12, we see uh, Peter arrested by King Herod, um, and he is you know, jailed and probably going to be executed. Everyone seems to expect him to be executed as the you know, story makes clear. And yet he's supernaturally rescued. You know, an angel of the Lord appears and basically leads him out of the prison. And so there are a few details here that are really interesting in chapter 12. When he arrives at um, the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, right? So it's a little confusing, but, you know, Mary is a very common name. There are a bunch of different Marys. So the house of Mary, well, which Mary? Well, the mother of John, well, which John? Well, the one that we also call Mark, you know, so <laughs> it's a little confusing. But, you know, just for simplicity's sake, he shows up at a house um, where fellow believers are living or a hold up and knocks on the door. They, you know, are stunned to see him. So everyone was expecting him to be executed by Herod. Um, after Peter tells them what happened with the angel, he says, tell James and the brothers about this, and then he left for another place. Doesn't say where, so he went into hiding, right? And then in the morning, the soldiers who have been guarding Peter, um, Herod interrogates them, can't figure out what happened, no one's really sure how he got out, and then uh, Herod has them executed. And that shows Herod's brutality, but it also shows that um, this very much, very most likely was a true miracle. It, this wasn't a case where maybe one of the guards helped him escape, and then later they explained it as a miracle because these guards paid with their lives. You know, So either you had a 
um, guard for Herod, who was willing to sacrifice his life to free Peter, or you had an angel of the Lord appear. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that, you know, if I was talking with someone and they're like, well, yeah, I take it on faith, an angel appeared, and this happened exactly as it describes, I would say, sure, yeah, okay, I, I can totally support that. And if I was talking to someone else who's maybe a little more skeptical um, and said, you know, well, was it really an angel of the Lord or was it probably a guard who was willing to sacrifice his life to save Peter? I'd say, sure, fine. <laughs> it doesn't, this is one of those ex stories in scripture and a good example of the types of stories in scripture that to me personally, I don't hang my hat on either way. Um, I am comfortable with someone interpreting this to mean a literal angel appearing and the story unfolding exactly as it describes here. Um, as a person of faith, you know, I believe in the supernatural. I believe in miracles. I believe in angels and spiritual beings. Um, I believe in all that stuff as a matter of faith. At the same time, I feel comfortable with someone interpreting this to say, well, yeah, the guard willing to sacrifice his life for Peter is an angel of the Lord to Peter in this story, in this context. Um, you know, I know ancient writers often would um, add artistic flourishes and literary uh, metaphors and devices to try to make their point more powerfully. Um, so this is a good example for me personally of one of those parts of scripture that I don't feel, you know, compelled to insist on one interpretation over the other. Um, one exception with that to that would be, you know, the story of the resurrection. Um, I believe Jesus resurrected. I believe that because of the account of the disciples' reaction. Um, you know, they went from cowering in homes, hiding from the authorities, to boldly proclaiming the gospel. What happened? Probably they saw the risen Christ. Um, at the same time, you know, I know that there are some Christians out there uh, who consider themselves very devout, very faithful, and, you know, really back up their consideration or their self-perception with their actions and their behavior, you know, the, there are a lot of good, faithful Christians out there who aren't sure if the resurrection was a literal historical event or some kind of metaphor. I disagree with that. But at the end of the day, if we all love God and we all follow the ways of Jesus and we all try to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit as he nudges us and guides us in our lives and speaks to us, then, you know, I think we can uh, agree to disagree on, you know, certain specific interpretations of uh, miracles in the Bible. Uh, because, you know, the Jesus didn't say, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by uh, believing in miracles <laughs> or believing in biblical accounts of the miracles as literal video surveillance of what happened. He says, by me. Right? So um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, this story jumps out at me as an example where, you know, people could really disagree and really fight and argue. But at the end of the day, what is the core tenant of the faith, right? What are the core things that one has to believe and do to 
back up this claim or assertion of being a follower of Jesus, of deeply trusting in Jesus. Okay, so after Peter's miraculous escape from prison, we have this strange historical event where Herod, you know, basically falls down dead. You know, and it's interesting in the NIV uh, translation that I have here, it says immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, you know, they, he's giving this public address, and the people say, this is the voice of God, not a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. <laughs> you know, and that phrase, eaten by worms, you know, I think that is the author's cluing us in that this is not video surveillance of Herod's death, you know? I mean, I'm trying to imagine, like, how would this work, you know? Would he have, like, a heart attack and fall down and then, you know, in the dirt and worms would immediately come out and start eating him? Like, I don't understand. Um, I think probably what's more likely is, you know, maybe he had a heart attack and or some a stroke or something, and then he lingered for a long time and his body kind of, you know, uh, became weaker and weaker and more and more dilapidated and then eventually passed away right and i haven't done the research into what that phrase eaten by worms might mean if it's an idiom you know referring to like a long period uh on hospice care or a long period of you know being you know unresponsive or something like that um but it's you know it's an interesting point that in this depiction of Herod's death, the biblical authors are using literary devices and metaphors and turns of phrases and sayings. And it's it's almost like the biblical authors want us to understand that we're reading a historical narrative, not, you know, video taped surveillance footage of exactly what happened and how it happened. And so again, what are the tenets of the faith? What are the major important things for us as believers to discuss and debate and to settle on or agree on? And what are the things that we might have, uh, might be open to viewing from multiple different perspectives? And not that maybe one isn't right and one isn't wrong. Maybe they all have a point and maybe they all have something we can learn from. So um, we see... In chapter 13 of Acts, uh, Paul and Barnabas going on Paul's first missionary journey. And so a lot of what I've been kind of talking about and laying the groundwork for um, so far, we're going to see in Paul's first missionary journey. We're also going to see later in the Council of Jerusalem. So in this uh, first missionary journey, um, Paul is uh, traveling to uh, Cyprus, Paphos, Antioch. You know, he's traveling around the Eastern Mediterranean. So around Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, um, into Greece. Okay, so that's the area where he's primarily traveling. And he's going to the synagogues in these places. You know, at this point in time in history, the Jews have been dispersed, you know, throughout um, the ancient Near East. And so there are Jewish communities in all of these cities and towns throughout the Eastern Mediterranean, in Turkey, in Lebanon, Greece. And Paul is traveling around to them and stopping at the synagogues there. You know, it's almost like, you know, imagine, you know, you go to a big city and you, know, you find Chinatown and you find, you know, shrines to, you know, Buddha or um, 
you know, other Eastern religions there. You know, it's kind of like that. You go to the city and you find the Jewish part of town, you know, little Jerusalem, and you find the synagogue and you start preaching Jesus Christ. You start preaching the gospel. What could go wrong, right? Um, you know, these people who believe in following Torah and law are then told by Paul and Barnabas, well, actually, no, the law and the Torah doesn't provide salvation. It doesn't provide for resurrection of the body. That comes only through the grace of Jesus Christ and believing in his death and resurrection. So um, the study Anno Domini says, you know, Paul told the Jews that Jesus alone offers salvation and redemption, not the law of Moses. Because the Jews did not listen, Paul turned his message to the Gentiles who believed. And Paul does some miracles. He heals a crippled man. Um, they, you know, the people start to think, whoa, maybe Paul's a god here. He just pulled this miracle off. He rebukes them, unlike Herod. So there's a clear, you know, contrast there that we're supposed to recognize or see. Um, you know, and Paul's not the only disciple performing miracles throughout the book of Acts. And so it's maybe a really important contrast, not just between Herod and Paul, but Herod and other believers or apostles as well, that, you know, they are always directing the glory to God not to themselves. They're making it very clear. We're doing this through God's power, not through our own power, um, which of course is a, a big contrast with Herod in the story. So uh, then Paul, you know, continues on his travels. He gets stoned, he gets beaten up, but he manages to survive and continue on his missionary journey. Um, on their way back to Antioch, they strengthen, this is according to Anno Domini, the study, they strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to persevere. They also appointed elders to each church. Upon their return, Paul and Barnabas shared all that God had done through them. So it's interesting that you see, you know, this missionary journey where they're going to the synagogues, preaching to the Jews. The Jews are rejecting them and getting mad at them. Some of them are believing them. And then others are then, you know, stirring up dissension and conflict and uh, stir the book of Acts tells us that it's, they stirred up the other Jews against Barnabas and Paul. Um, so then Paul and Barnabas say, okay, we're going to start preaching to the Gentiles. Forget going to little Jerusalem and finding the synagogue. Let's just go straight to the Gentiles with our message. And the Gentiles are much more open to it, right? I mean, they these are people who maybe they worship Apollo or they, you know, and they have the, a polytheistic view and their view is not that salvation comes through Torah, but maybe um, to what extent, you know, some kind of salvation or blessing comes. It's from uh, pleasing Apollo or Artemis or Zeus. And so they are um, more open, receptive to this message. And then the problem becomes, this committee jumping a little bit ahead in church history, but then the problem because, okay, now you believe in Jesus believe in him exclusively now don't believe in you know zeus and jesus like just worship jesus um, but again that's maybe jumping ahead a little bit in paul's missionary work and his letters to the churches uh, that he founded it's also interesting that you know they appointed elders to the churches so it's you know we've established these churches planted these churches and now we're moving on to continue our work and plant new churches but we don't want those old churches to falter so we need to uh, uh, create some organization, some structure, some leadership to keep these going when we're not here. Okay, so let's maybe pause, or not pause, but slow down and 
let's look at um, Acts chapter 13 and this long speech or sermon that uh, Paul gives or delivers in the synagogue. Um, so at this point, you know, he, um, according to Acts chapter 13, verse 13, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. And from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Boy, they didn't know what they were opening up, did they? Uh, so Paul delivers this long, well, it seems long because, you know, it goes on in our Bibles, but, you know, it probably just took him a few minutes to say this. But he delivers this speech or this uh, sermon in which he summarizes the history of Israel. You know, he talks about uh, God delivering them from Egypt and then enduring their disobedience and grumbling in the wilderness. Um, he talks about the time of the judges and Samuel the prophet and then the people asking for a king and the anointing of Saul and then the removal of Saul and the anointing and institution of David, the son of Jesse, a man after God's own heart. And from that man's descendants, Paul says, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus. Before the coming of Jesus, John the Baptist preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me. Um, and then Paul goes on to explain that the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. And yet, in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. And then he goes on with his sermon, and he quotes some scripture, not our scripture, but the Hebrew scripture, right? It's maybe worth pointing out, Paul did not know he was writing the New Testament. <laughs> Luke and other uh, authors of the New Testament didn't know they were writing the New Testament. They were writing letters to fellow believers. And then those letters went viral. They got shared across many churches over many decades and then centuries. And uh, then the organized institutional church sat down and said, we need some scriptures. And these letters seem to be really, really powerful, really useful for believers because they keep getting passed down and passed around. So we'll canonize these as holy scripture. Um, that's simplifying, perhaps oversimplifying, but I, that's the general process as I understand it. So if you asked Paul, you know, well, what scriptures, you know, what's your favorite scripture? He would not quote his own letters. He would not mention the book of James or Hebrews or even the Gospels. He would be thinking of the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, the wisdom literature and Proverbs and Job, the Psalms. Um, you know, the, all of the uh, Hebrew scriptures that he had grown up studying. So at this point in Paul's sermon, he quotes some scriptures. And specifically, he says, As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. So that is uh, Psalm 2, verse 7. So if we flip back to that, we can look at the context of that verse. You are my son, today I have become your father. Okay. If we look at the full 
Psalm, Psalm 2, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now in my study Bible, there's a little footnote and the footnote says, or anointed one. So in the uh, translation, NIV translation, anointed one, the footnote anointed one. In the translation, it's capitalized. In the footnote, it's not. And so that's a subtle hint that the translation committee for the New International Version chose to capitalize anointed one to try to convey that we're not talking about just any anointed one. We're talking about the anointed one. We're talking about Jesus. But in the original manuscript, it's not capitalized. Um, and then I have another uh, note in my study Bible, um, the Messiah and the Psalms. Israelite kings and priests were anointed with oil when they took office. And we see this described in um, the book of First and Second Samuel with Saul and David. The anointed one probably originally meant king. It came, however, to stand for more. Okay, so that's really interesting. Um, the Hebrew word is Messiah, which became Messiah, spelling a little differently, and translated into Greek as Christos or Christ. Okay, so this psalm, the note goes on to say, this psalm was understood in the New Testament as referring to Jesus. For no Old Testament king ever gained the control of the nations implied here. And yet, Jesus also did not gain the control of the nations implied here. Let's, let's look at this whole psalm. So uh, the king of the earth, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, the Lord and his anointed one, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king in Zion, my holy hill. So that's, you know, my king in Jerusalem, my anointed one in Jerusalem. And again, I have a footnote where the same word is in the original manuscript and not capitalized. So we're not necessarily referring to the king, the king of kings, Jesus, but a king, an anointed one. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I, God, have installed my king on Zion in Jerusalem, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. And here we get to the part Paul quotes. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And again, we have another footnote saying that the word son is not capitalized, but the NIV chose to capitalize it to make the connection to Jesus more clear, more apparent. Um, so, as the note says, this, these references to the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, uh, became in the New Testament understood as referring to the Christ, Jesus. But, I'm sorry, you just can't make the argument, in a convincing way at least, that whoever wrote Psalm 2 was prophesying Jesus. No, whoever wrote Psalm 2 is writing about this military political messiah. Um, the psalm goes on to say, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them 
with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, those at the beginning of the psalm who are conspiring, therefore, you conspiring kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So Psalm 2 um, seems to be very clearly kind of this militaristic, political, nationalistic uh, psalm saying there are these nations and peoples conspiring against us, plotting against us, and they better watch out because um, our God, Yahweh, is going to anoint and install a leader, a ruler, who's going to destroy them and rule over them with an iron scepter. Um, and so if you don't want that to happen, be wise, kings, and you might want to start worshiping and serving our God, our Lord. So that's what Psalm 2 is saying. And yet Paul interprets it in this sermon as saying that God has fulfilled this promise to their fathers, to Jewish previous Jews, by uh, raising up Jesus. Right? What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. So we see here an example of Paul creatively reinterpreting his own scriptures, his own tradition, to make his argument more persuasive to his listeners, his Jewish audience. And then he continues, The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Okay, and so that's from Isaiah 55, chapter 3, or Isaiah 55, verse 3, rather. So in Isaiah 55, verse 3, uh, the prophet writes, Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. So, a lot of words there, a lot of poetry there, um, but the key verse that Paul quotes is, I will give you the holy and, and sure blessings promised to David. So I, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. So either the NIV is translating these things differently or uh, Paul paraphrased. However you look at it, in Isaiah 55, there doesn't seem to be any clear, obvious um, intention to for Isaiah to say, and by the way, this is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. This is really, in Isaiah 55, it's really just saying, um, I'm going to make a covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Like, I, you know, have these blessings I want to give the nation of Israel, my chosen people. Um, they're, I've blessed and set apart from all the nations, and I'm faithful to that promise to David and to the line of David. Um, and so Paul, again, is reinterpreting this in a creative way, saying the fact that God raised him from the dead, this is Acts, uh, we're back in Acts chapter 13, verse 34, the fact that God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. I'm confused. I don't know if you are, but I'm not really sure where Paul is getting that idea. Um, 
And then Paul adds another one. You, so it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Okay, so he's calling forth another psalm, Psalm 16, chapter 10, um, and connecting that, you know, uh, holy one to Jesus and Jesus to the promises and the covenant of David and the Israelites. So here's my point. I've, I've already said it a couple times, but it's striking to me that in this early history of the church, Paul, probably the most prominent active missionary in the early church, is very creative in reinterpreting and reapplying his scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, to this new reality revealed to him by his vision on the Damascus Road and his encounter and experience of Jesus. You know, remember, he's persecuting the Christian church because um, as a uh, Pharisee, he believes that uh, the priests have to be very ritually pure, very righteous. They have to follow Torah to the letter. And if everyone else in the nation of Israel, all the other Jews, also adhere to that level of Torah law following, then we can hasten the arrival of God's kingdom. We can hasten the arrival of the Messiah, a political military leader who will oust the Romans and establish Israel as God's kingdom on earth. So for this new sect of Jews to start preaching that Jesus Christ crucified, Jesus crucified is the Christ and that he's the Messiah and that the Messiah is not a political military leader, but rather uh, the Son of God who sacrificed his life so that anyone who deeply trusts in him might have everlasting life and might look forward to a resurrection of the body just like he resurrected. That set of ideas not only is radically different from Jewish tradition and belief and religion and custom, it also is a threat to it. Because if a bunch of Jews start believing that, if they start believing they're justified and, and saved by grace, not by following Torah and law, then they may stop following Torah and law. And, and this, so this is an existential issue for Paul and the Pharisees. Um, and viewed that way, you can empathize for why they persecuted the early church. Um, in their minds, they're the good guys. In their minds, they are trying to hasten the coming of the kingdom of God. They are uh, against these pagans, these, these heretics, who are going to keep the kingdom of God from coming as they, as they, as they hope it will. Um, so then Paul struck blind, and, and he has a vision of Jesus. He hears Jesus speak to him. And he has three days of blindness, sitting in a, in a house, depending on other people to think about it. He's struck blind. He hears Jesus, and he's got three whole days of just sitting there in the dark to think about it and think about how this experience changes everything he thought he knew. So, of course, then, when he preaches the gospel, he is going to reinterpret and re-understand everything he thought he knew from his scriptures and his tradition and see it all in a completely new light, the light of this surprise twist ending to Israel's story, the resurrection of Jesus. 
And yet, in many churches and seminaries and academic institutions, Paul could not preach or teach Paul. <laughs> because we tend to look at the things that Paul wrote and other New Testament authors wrote and say, well, look, it says right here um, that this is how we should understand this and this is how we should interpret this and, and get our heads around Jesus or the Holy Spirit or God and the Trinity, you know, or this is, you know, how we should understand, um, you know, the way to practice and exercise our faith. So Paul couldn't teach Paul because we tend to insist on just one interpretation and usually the plainest, most literal interpretation. You know, this is what the words on the page say. And Paul would get in trouble because he would probably say, well, hold on a second. No, you need to reinterpret, re-understand these things I wrote 2,000 years ago <laughs> to apply to your context today and your situation today. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I, I think Christians throughout history have done that. Even, uh, even some of the ones who say they're not doing that, you know, they say that they're just interpreting it plainly and that this is what it means, obviously. Um, but of course, you can't escape viewing things through the lens of your experience in the world and your social and cultural position, right? Like, I have no idea what a um, woman in the 1200s in Egypt might think about the New Testament because that's not my experience and that's not my culture and my society. And so I can't escape viewing the scriptures and viewing the history of the church from my perspective and experience as a white male in uh, late 20th, early 21st century America. You know, just a quick example to illustrate that. Um, there's a Bible scholar and author named Miguel de la Torre has a book called Reading the Bible from the Margins. And so he gives an example of that where um, most middle class people interpret Jesus' parable about the vineyard and the workers and they try to interpret it in a way to almost rescue Jesus from himself. Like, oh, this sounds really unfair that some of these people started working later in the day but got the same wage as those who worked all day. What could Jesus have possibly meant by that? And Miguel de la Torre makes the point that Jesus' audience would have consisted of a lot of day laborers. A lot of those type of men who are waiting around hoping to get picked to go work in the vineyard. And that they would have understood that this parable was as much about what vineyard owners owe to workers as anything because they were waiting around to be picked or picked up or called. It's not their fault the vineyard owner didn't call them until near the end of the day. And if the vineyard owner only gives them like a fourth of a day's wages, then they're not going to be able to afford to eat that night they're not going to have the calories and the sustenance and energy to come back and work the next day. So the vineyard owner would be kind of spiting his own, you know, cutting off his own nose, so to speak, by not doing what seems unfair to us middle-class Westerners um, and giving them the full day's wage. And so, you know, that's just one quick example of how, you know, if we're 
in a certain, if we have a certain experience of life and a certain social cultural position, it can be very hard for us to read certain parts of the Bible from other perspectives. We just don't know what we don't know. We haven't experienced what we haven't experienced. And so what might jump out immediately to a man like Miguel de la Torre just never would have occurred to me unless he pointed it out to me based on his experience and social and cultural position and background. So um, we tend to insist, well, there's got to be one way to understand the scripture. There has to be the answer. And ideally, it's the one that is seems to be most faithful to the words on the page. And we totally tend to devalue then the social cultural context of Paul's time, of first century ancient world, ancient Near East. Um, we tend to totally ignore the fact that, you know, this English Bible is a translation of probably a German Bible that was a translation of the Latin Bible that was a translation of a Greek Bible that was a translation of Hebrew, if we're talking about the Old Testament, you know, and that translation committees have to make a lot of decisions and choices. Do we capitalize anointed one to make this more seem to uh, point to Jesus? Or do we leave it lowercase the way it is in the original manuscript? You know, translation committees make a lot of decisions. And so we have to think about all these different contexts um, when we're interpreting scripture. And I think that the only way we can navigate this is like Paul did. My experience of Jesus <laughs> is upending what I thought I knew. So I have to rethink what I thought I knew and rethink my tradition and my scriptures and beliefs and practices in light of Jesus. And I have to, um, when I'm preaching, I have to update how I present this in light of Jesus. I have to follow where the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding. You know, and it seems to me that we're often afraid to engage in that kind of work or that kind of theology um, because who are we? <laughs> well, Paul can do that, uh, but who am I to do that? Well, I think I'm... A follower of Christ. I think I have the Holy Spirit too. Um, I'm not going to claim the same kind of authority as Paul because I, I haven't had a mystical experience like that. Um, but I think that what we see in the New Testament are examples in Paul and Peter and James and others of creatively reinterpreting and understanding their tradition and we have that example passed down to us so that we will get the hint and do the same thing <laughs> and continue to pursue what it means to be a person of faith in our lives, in our context. I mean, if you think about it, if faith, if our faith tradition really was static and fixed, if it really was a matter of figuring out the right answer and just sticking with that for all time, sooner or later, the engagement with our tradition and our scripture and our God would start to shrivel up, wouldn't it? Um, and I think, you know, you could make the argument that maybe you see that a little bit in the Pharisees um, because they were not open, certainly not open to Jesus, certainly not open to this idea that uh, salvation and God's kingdom could come about through grace and through submission and service 
as opposed to you know rigidly following these laws to try to bring about um, a political military messiah. So I guess what I'm trying to say is our own scriptures give us examples of how we can, and I would argue should, continually engage with our um, our beliefs, our practices, and our traditions. Because you know, if the early church hadn't done exactly that, then you and me and all the other Gentile believers out there wouldn't be Christians. Uh, so in this is, comes from the, the book, the study Anno Domini. Um, they write, in Acts 15, we read about a big moment for the early church, which is really understating it. Um, the question at hand was, should Gentile believers be circumcised? Peter spoke up. He believed circumcision was not necessary for Gentile believers. He said God did not make a distinction between them, Jews, and the Gentiles, for he also gave Gentiles the Holy Spirit and cleansed their hearts. So we have Peter standing up at what's called the Council of Jerusalem and saying to all of these Jewish Christians, these circumcised believers, Remember that thing with Cornelius, the Roman centurion? <laughs> Remember how the Holy Spirit came upon him and his household and everyone in it, even though none of them were circumcised, even they were all of them were Gentiles and pagans? Remember that? So that happened, and therefore, I don't think that God distinguishes between Jews and non-Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised. I think that um, the Holy Spirit cleanses us. And so Peter uh, says he believe, also believed if they required the Gentiles to be circumcised, it would place the law on them. So if we say, Gentile believers, you have to be circumcised to follow Jesus, to be part of our Christian movement, then that is, in effect, going to put the law of Torah on them, um, which was an unbearable yoke that they, the Jews themselves, could not live up to. And but rather, Peter believed that the Gentiles could be saved by the grace of God alone. And so the church decided at the Council of Jerusalem, Gentiles did not need circumcision for salvation. God's grace alone is our means for salvation. So we see Paul creatively reinterpreting his tradition and his, whole, his own scriptures. But we also see Peter and James and the other apostles at the Council of Jerusalem. You know, one of the first, earliest, and... The, the founding church council, the founding um, center of the church, had a meeting and creatively reinterpreted their tradition and their scriptures for this fresh new context, this new situation, this, this new experience they were having in which the Holy Spirit's coming on Gentiles too. It's coming on uncircumcised people too. So looking at Acts chapter 15, you know, you see... Um, in verse 5, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, okay, so you have some Jew Pharisees who have converted to Judaism, who have believed in Jesus as the Christ. Uh, I'm sorry, converted to Christianity. Um, but they still have that Pharisee, Pharisee background, right? And so they come up and they say the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So like I mentioned before, you know, today in our minds, we're like, gosh, could you be Jewish and follow Jewish custom and Torah and all of that and um, and still believe in Jesus? Like, I, that doesn't add up for me. 
for them, for Peter, Paul, and James and the apostles, it was precisely the opposite. Wait, can you like not follow Torah and still follow Jesus? That doesn't add up for me. Like you got to do both or one to do the other, right? So the Pharisees, you know, some of the believers stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. So he's referring back to Cornelius the centurion. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Okay, and then Barnabas and Paul, fresh from their missionary journey, tell about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James spoke up. James, the brother of Jesus, spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon Peter has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. Okay, so here, James follows, you know, Paul's lead, Peter's lead, and quotes from their tradition, their scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. And in the, and specifically, James is quoting Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. So if we flip back to Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, in my study Bible, I've got a header or a heading, Israel's restoration. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of men and all the nations that bear my name may seek the Lord. Okay, so notice the difference there. The scripture in Amos says, all the nations that bear my name. James says, all the Gentiles who bear my name, right? So you have not just a creative reinterpretation, but an absolute change. Um, and I'm assuming that my NIV study Bible is accurate <laughs> in having the translation of in Amos be the nations that bear my name versus James um, having the translation be the Gentiles. And of course, you know, maybe I'm splitting hairs because the nations that bear my name, says the Lord, um, could be described as you know, or could be equated to the Gentiles, you know, the nations of the world, the Gentiles. Okay, so if we look at the rest of chapter 9 of Amos, we zoom back out a little bit, we can maybe get a better sense of what the author of Amos actually intended us for us to understand from this, or his Jewish audience to understand from this. So um, earlier in, you know, chapter 9, Amos is saying Israel is going to be destroyed. And in verse 7, he says, are, you, are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? And then in my 
study Bible. I have a footnote. Um, that is people from the Upper Nile region. Okay, so remember, the Israelites came up out of Egypt. So are you not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord. Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt? The Philistines from Kaptor, um, and I have a footnote that says that's Crete, and the Arameans from Kerr. And I have no footnotes, so apparently no one knows uh, where Kerr is in modern-day uh, parlance or geography. So we have, you know, this, um, you know, in the book of Amos in general, you know, in the whole book, Amos is describing the sins of these other nations, and then he flips the script and says, "In Israel, you're not any better. God's going to judge and destroy these nations for their sins, and now you've got all these similar sins that God will judge you and destroy you for. Um, and so it seems like in this context, Amos is saying, you know, you think you're special because you're Israelites, but you have these sins of greed and oppression of the poor and dishonesty toward uh, marginalized groups, and you will be judged and held accountable for that too. You will be destroyed for the, your sins, just like any of these other nations. You're not special. Um, and yet, this is in Amos um, chapter 9, verse 8, yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, you know, the Israel. I will give the command and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. So all these, um, you know, this is a really vivid image, isn't it, of you know, God shaking the house of Israel, shaking the nation, the people of Israel. And uh, it's like grain in a sieve. And no pebble is going to hit the ground. No sinners are going to escape my sieve. But only those who are righteous maybe will get through the sieve into the ground. Um, and so those, and those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us, those who think because we're Israel, we're Jews, we're special, we're protected, um, we can do what we want, act how we want, live how we want. Those people will also face judgment. But he's not going to totally destroy the house of Jacob. And so in verse 11, in that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. That could be a reference to the tabernacle, to you know the, temp the uh, original version of the temple before Solomon you know, turned David's tent into the massive stone temple. Um, I will repair its broken places. I will restore its ruins and build it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of men and all the nations that bear my name. Okay, so in this context, Amos seems to be saying God, you know, God will restore the temple where you can worship. And all those who are spread throughout the ancient Near East, either through the Assyrian exile, the Babylonian exile, or just normal travel and moving around, um, all those people, the remnant uh, of Israel, will have a place to worship still in the future. If you understand two things, um, one, that the Old Testament is very concerned about worship God alone, and two, the Old Testament's final form that we have today came about after the Babylonian exile, it really changes your understanding of scripture because you start to see, oh, 
<laughs> somebody definitely added this back in to remind the Israelites living in exile in Babylon, don't be like the Babylonians, don't worship their gods, don't follow their religious customs and practices. As tempting as it might be to assimilate into this new culture and new religion, don't do it. Worship Yahweh alone, and here's why. That's a long digression to say, I don't think James necessarily had the strongest legs to stand on in changing all the men, um, all the nations that bear my name to all the Gentiles who bear my name. I don't think you can take Amos and take this verse out of context in Amos and say, oh, well, by nations, we really just mean non-Jews. So we mean Gentiles. No, I think that the prophet Amos is being pretty specific here. Paul creatively reinterprets scripture. Peter creatively reinterprets scripture. James creatively reinterprets scripture. So if the apostles in the early history of the church can do it, why can't we do it? Well, of course, we're not them. We don't have you know, the direct experience of Jesus the way they did, and most of us don't have spiritual visions like Paul did. But if we don't do it, then if we don't follow their example, then how do we continue to pursue God and his kingdom and to bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven? Because if they didn't do this, in the Council of Jerusalem, we wouldn't be, I wouldn't be doing this podcast, right? We wouldn't be followers of Jesus because the early church would have excluded us. And that's not what they did. They quoted their own scripture and their own tradition in a uh, cherry-picked, <laughs> proof-texting way to say, based on our experience, we pretty, we're pretty confident we need to include these people what can we point to to back us up on that? How do we understand our tradition differently based on our experience, based on the Holy Spirit, so that we now understand just how important it is we include all people and not exclude anyone from God's kingdom? So what would be a church council without some kind of policy? Um, they uh, pass their agreement here uh, that they should write to the Gentiles and tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols. You know, so in the ancient world, you sacrifice your goat to this idol to Zeus and you've got some perfectly good meat there. You're not going to waste it. You're going to take it home and eat it, right? Um, except that's kind of icky from the perspective of a monotheistic religion, the perspective of Jewish converts to Christianity. So um, they want to write to the Gentiles and tell them, abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. In other words, um, we know that you all are familiar with at least these things. You know, kind of like, you know, we uh, Christians today, we're familiar with Islam. We're familiar with the fact that they pray five times a day pointed toward Mecca. You know, so um, they're saying to these Gentiles in their time, we know you're familiar with, you know, don't eat food polluted by idols or sacrificed idols. Um, don't eat, you know, meat from strangled animals and don't drink blood. That's just weird. No, I, I'm sure there are more significant reasons for those things. 
Um, and then also from sexual immorality, you know, because again, in the ancient world, um, their sexual mores were very different from ours, particularly in Greek and Roman culture. Um, things like pederasty uh, were much more common. Visiting prostitutes was very common. And so they write a letter and they send it and they say in their letter, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. So even in the phrasing of the letter, the early church is saying, you know, we'd like you to do these things if you're going to be part of our movement. But, you know, it's more of a suggestion. You would do well to avoid these things. You know, we believe that doing these things will result in negative consequences. Not doing them will result in positive consequences. And that's pretty obvious if we're talking about sexual immorality. At least it's obvious to us, you know, maybe not to some of these people in these ancient cultures. But to us, you know, that makes intuitive sense. Um, you know, if you cheat on your spouse, that's not going to work out well for anyone most likely. Um, the meat of strangled animals, I'm sorry, but I'm a little lost on that one. The best I can do with that one is um, you, maybe you strangle an animal to kill it and the animal defecates and urinates on itself and now you've got a filthy animal that you're trying to clean up before you, you know, skin it and clean it and eat it. Um, drinking blood, Sounds really disgusting. I think I probably would do it if I lived in the Middle East and didn't have an abundance of clean drinking water. Um, but I also could see where that would make me very sick every now and then from time to time. So, you know, there are obviously consequences then, um, whether physical or spiritual, you know, sacrificing food to idols and then having that kind of weird um, mixing of, you know, well, am I blessed because I'm following God? Am I blessed because... Um, I ate this from the idol food. Am I, you know, having that kind of mixing, I could see having spiritual effects. So in the Council of Jerusalem, they reinterpret their tradition. James flat out totally reinterprets Amos to say something that it doesn't seem to be saying at all in its original context. And then they conclude, well, let's just give them a few minor things that are really going to just be uh, have positive effects if they follow them, but they're not required for them to be followers of Jesus and to be uh, have access to the kingdom of God and the family of God. Okay, well, that's going to do it for me. Um, our next episode about the history of the early church will pick up with Paul's second missionary journey, and we'll continue learning about how the early church um, approached things and uh, hopefully illuminating how we might approach our own faith. Thank you as always for listening and please tell others about the podcast.